Welcome to Church History for Everyone, a podcast that brings to life the stories of the saints of generations gone by. From Athanasius to William Carey, and from Nero's persecutions to the Great Awakening, we provide a digestible and challenging look at the figures and events that have shaped church history and, in turn, changed the world. Now, here's your host, Christopher Hume. It's July of 1897, a time when the world is changing very rapidly. Now, the summer of 1897 contained many events, but two of which I want to draw our attention to before shifting into the main topic of this podcast. So in 1897, two events happened that gave us hints about what was coming for the nation and the world. So the first thing that happened in July was that Amelia Earhart was born. Now, Amelia Earhart would become the first female aviator to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. And her birth symbolizes the change, the the radical change in transportation that aviation was going to bring. Uh, Six years later, after her birth, In uh, 1903, the Wright brothers made their first powered flight, and the 20th century, of course, was shaped in in pretty powerful ways by the airplane. You think of World War II, you think of international travel, um, aviation was going to change the world. In 1897, Earhart's born. The second thing that happened in 1897, the summer of 1897, actually, was that uh, a man by the name of Thomas Edison registered a patent for a camera. Now, Edison had already brought light to a dark world by developing a practical incandescent lamp in 1878. His new camera, however, allowed people to watch moving pictures without sound, but it was the forerunner to the modern motion picture. So those are two things in 1897 that really hinted at the future of where the nation and the world were going. Today, of course, Air travel and motion pictures are things that are taken for granted. Now, there's something else that happened in the summer of 1897 that didn't point to the future, but pointed to the past. And that was a journey that a parchment-bound folio about the size of a slim college textbook made from England to Massachusetts. A journey across the choppy Atlantic Ocean aboard an ocean liner that would take anywhere from two to three weeks to make it across the Atlantic, a trip that Lindbergh would make in 34 hours just three decades later. Now, this folio, this manuscript that we are focusing on now was making this journey from England with a man from the state of Delaware, a man who ran unsuccessfully for the Democratic nomination for president before leaving politics and then coming back as an ambassador Uh, for America to England. Now, considering the contents of this folio, I would argue that his current task in transporting this manuscript from England to America was the most significant in his public life. Uh, I don't know if he would agree with me, but looking back, especially from a church history perspective, this uh, event, this task that came to him was extremely important, and I'm thankful that he made it to Massachusetts safely with this manuscript. Now, the manuscript that we're talking about here had spent the last 100 years in London at a London's library at a place called Fulham Palace, 
which is a picturesque and historic English landmark still there today, situated along the River Thames. Now, the story within this manuscript is one of epic proportions. In fact, at the time, in in 1897, one U.S. senator considered it to be unparalleled and peerless, noting that there is nothing like it in human annals since the story of Bethlehem. So this senator is saying there's no story that compares to the one in this manuscript except the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another man who devoted significant time to studying the the contents of this manuscript considered it to be of unearthly value. And he said this, he said, this manuscript is of far higher worth than any any historic record except the Gospels themselves. That's high praise indeed, and it's believed that this manuscript was taken from Massachusetts to London by an English soldier during the Revolutionary War, which ended, of course, in 1783. Now, after nearly 115 years of being a pilgrim on English soil, the American manuscript was making its way home. Now, for a brief background on how this manuscript came to be discovered after being hidden away in a library in London for 115 years. Well, 50 years earlier, 50 years before this journey across the Atlantic Ocean, coming home, the manuscript coming home, 50 years before the Bishop of Oxford, Oxford, a man by the name of Samuel Wilberforce, was writing a history of the Protestant Episcopal Church in America. Now, he was poring over many manuscripts, many books uh, at Fulham Palace, and he came across this manuscript from the state of Massachusetts. He quoted a section of it for his book and moved on and didn't think much more of it. Now, 11 years later, a man by the name of John Wingate Thornton, who was an American lawyer, historian, and book collector, came across Wilberforce's book. Thornton then, in turn, passed the the book along to John Stetson Berry, an American author who had recently published a book called The History of Massachusetts. So Berry, of course, knows the history of Massachusetts. He comes across this manuscript and he recognizes immediately that this, this, he comes across the book, excuse me, he comes across Wilberforce's book and he recognizes immediately that Wilberforce's book contains quotes from an account that took place in Massachusetts in the 17th century. Now, after contacting more men back in England and talks about this, the, this, this manuscript that was used in Wilberforce's book, the manuscript was confirmed as being the legendary account of the pilgrims, those pilgrims who came to America in the 17th century. The work was identified then as the Log of the Mayflower, the log of the Mayflower. This manuscript is the account of the pilgrims traveling from England to America and the colony that they set up when they arrived. Now, over the next several decades leading up to 1897, different people would entreat Fulham Palace, asking them to return this manuscript to America. Now, the most vocal of these was a fiery senator from Massachusetts named George Frisbee Hoare. Now, other than having probably the greatest middle name in history, uh, Frisbee, 
Horror deemed the journal to be the only authentic history of what we have a right to consider the most important political transaction that has ever taken place on the face of the earth. So men like Hoare and others saw this manuscript of so valuable, of peerless, without match in the history of humanity, except for the Gospels themselves. Now, whether or not that's true, it tells us that this document was viewed as extremely valuable, extremely important by many men who thought deeply about this issue. Now, Hoare then asked Thomas Bayard, that's our friend from Delaware, who was acting as the U.S. ambassador to England to acquire this precious manuscript from the Bishop of London and then travel with it back to Massachusetts. So on July 12th then of 1897, Bayard landed in Massachusetts after making the journey from London to America. He lands in America and he hand delivers this manuscript to the governor of Massachusetts at the time, who was Roger Walcott. So now an American treasure is back on American soil for the first time in over a century. Now that story about how that that manuscript left Massachusetts, went to London, was in hiding, as it were, for 115 years, finally to be discovered, and then negotiations to take place between America and England to bring it back is an interesting story, but the adventure recounted in the pages of that manuscript dwarfs that story of the manuscript's journey home. The account contained in that well-traveled folio was written by a man who was a farmer, businessman, magistrate, diplomat, and man of God. One historian says that it's actually not too fanciful to think of this man as the first American. Another man says that in this man, the greatest qualities of Puritanism are embodied. The author of the manuscript was a man named William Bradford, and he's one of my favorite characters in church history. His book, now known by the title of Plymouth Plantation, is without question the single most important and significant source of information about the pilgrims. Now, there are other accounts as well that we will touch on, but Bradford's book is the most significant and weighty account that we have of the pilgrims who came from from England. Uh, they stayed in Holland. He, he covers he covers their whole history of of what was going on at the time, what led them to move from England to Holland, what led them to move to America. They were actually considering moving to uh, Africa at one point, and, and he covers this in his book. And it's a fascinating, fascinating account of the adventures of a group of men and women, boys and girls who traveled to America, an unknown land, and set up a colony uh, where they were hoping to live together in peace and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one of the most compelling and exciting sagas in all of history. So these men like Senator George Frisbee Hoare and others, they understood that while much of the attention of the world was focused on the future, and where the world was going, they understood that there is great value in the past. And they saw this story of the pilgrims is of so much importance that it was worth looking back at and considering what we might learn from this account. And there is so much that we can learn from this account as there is with all of church history. We are going to be looking at William Bradford. We're going to be 
looking at his life. We're going to be looking at what it was like for him to grow up in England during a time of uh, conflict over the truth of the gospel. We're going to look at his book. We're going to look at the journey that he and the other pilgrims took to America aboard the Mayflower. We're going to dig into all of that. So to really understand Bradford, we have to understand the times. And so I want to just briefly introduce when Bradford was born, what was going on, and then we're going to dig into that deeper in our next episode. So Bradford was born not in America. He was born in Osterfield, England in 1590. He was born into one of the most exciting and dangerous times in church history. To top it off, he was born in England, where the conflict between the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the pomp of popery and kings was raging. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, England, Scotland, there is intense conflict when the truth of the gospel comes to England and Scotland. So 73 years before, just to give you some context, 73 years before William Bradford's born in England, 73 years before that, a German monk named Martin Luther, you may have heard of him, nailed 95 arguments on a church door at Wittenberg, Germany, one excuse me, 580 miles from Osterfield as the crow flies. So 73 years before Bradford's born, Luther's nailing his theses on the church door at Wittenberg. Now the reverberations and implications of that event were still at shockwave level in England when Bradford entered the world. Now, I was born in the 1980s, so for a comparison, Luther was as far removed from Bradford as the First World War is removed from me. And in my life, though I've studied World War I, I don't feel the impact of it in the way that perhaps I should, but also certainly not in the way that Luther and the Reformation were impacting Bradford. The impact of the Reformation and the impact of the Reformers you know, such men as Martin Luther, John Calvin, and John Knox. Who, by the way, John Knox died just two less than two decades before Bradford was born. So the impact of the Reformation and these Reformers was palpable and present to the men and women who were born in Bradford's time, who would travel with Bradford to America aboard the Mayflower. So we have to understand what was going on. We'll dig into that. And really what set the stage in England for William Bradford's life, for his vision, for the pilgrims, for their colony, was the fact that the first fully English Bible, the first Bible written in English, translated directly from the Hebrew and the Greek, had been unleashed into English and Scottish soil just decades before Bradford's birth. So he comes along at this time where the Bible has just been given to the people, as it were. And that Bible, known as the Geneva Bible, would become Bradford's lifetime favorite. He would quote from it copiously in his book of Plymouth Plantation. Now, the Geneva Bible brought with it a powerful transformation of England and Scotland, a transformation that Bradford experienced in radical ways. It definitely shaped who this man was and his view of the world and his view of Christ as king. So Bradford's story then is really the story of the impact of the Reformation, the impact of the Geneva Bible, and the desire to worship Jesus Christ free from the dictates of kings and bishops. 
And so in our next episode of Church History for Everyone, we will begin to really dig into studying this man, William Bradford, looking at what life was like for a young boy growing up in England, 170 miles north of London, during one of the most tumultuous times in church history. We're going to consider what it was like for a young boy to be told that he had to worship as the king had dictated, and the story of a young boy who decided not to do that because he felt compelled to worship Jesus Christ as the Bible teaches. And that view, that mindset of following God's word, regardless of what kings or bishops say, is the mindset that would lead to the pilgrims coming to America. It's a fascinating story, and I look forward to studying William Bradford. I hope you join us next time. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Church History for Everyone. For information about following Jesus, the King of History, visit reformedhope.com and be sure to join us for our next episode. Until then, go live out your story as a servant of the risen Savior.